Well, good morning, friends. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, where we'll spend the next bit of our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, the first thing I want to do is say thank you for being here. We're so glad you're here. We'd love to give you a gift in honor of you being here. We'd love to give you a copy of the Bible. Uh, you'll need it this morning. I think it'll really help you to follow along with what's coming next, but we'd love for you to take it so you can continue to read and reflect on what you'll hear this morning, and we'd love the chance to talk to you uh, about what you'll, what you'll hear this morning, about what you'll read there on your own. So please do look in front of you. You should have a, a Bible somewhere within arm's reach. Please consider that to be our gift to you. I want to begin our time together now by reading from the first five verses of Philippians chapter 4. And I want to ask you to stand with me, please, in honor of God's word as I read. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is God's word. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you guys to humor me here for just a minute with a show of hands. Uh, were you surprised by spring forward this morning? And raise your hand if you were surprised by it. Man, I just must live with my head in the clouds. I was completely caught off guard. And normally I... I do hear that it's coming, uh, and I certainly am not going to complain that it's here. I would much rather spring forward than fall back. I'm going to enjoy every minute of that extra hour of daylight I've got in store for me today. But if I had known that it was spring forward, I wouldn't have stayed up so late last night reading. If I had known it was spring forward, I would have set an alarm for myself this morning and the fact that I didn't meant that I missed a precious hour that I would, I'd intended to use preparing myself for this sermon I'm about to share with you guys this morning. If I had known and really believed that spring forward would come, was coming, I, I, I would have I done something about it. It would have shaped my behavior now. It would have made a practical difference. For Christians, uh, our hope in Christ is supposed to make that sort of difference. It's supposed to be the sort of thing that we expect and therefore, and th- and therefore act in the light of. It's not, this sort of, it's not this sort of hope that you might have in your life insurance policy, you know, paid for, then, then filed away until you need it, God forbid. It's more like a, a roadmap that we need every minute of every day just to get through life in the meantime. It's an expectation that we have that makes a practical difference now. And, and our passage this morning is Paul's attempt to show us how. To show us what a difference it makes if you actually believe That Christ has loved you at the cost of his own life. That he is risen now and reigning. And that one day he'll come again for you. I I wonder if you noticed that verse 1 in chapter 4 
operates kind of like the hinge of a door, swinging from what Paul's just been saying about hope in Christ in chapter 3 and, and then into a list of commands that he gives his friends for how to live now while they wait for his return. Therefore, Paul says, verse 1, in other words, because Christ has emptied himself, become one of us, and obeyed all the way to death on the cross, therefore... Because God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. Therefore, because you can now know him, I mean truly know him and the power of his resurrection in your life. Therefore, because he, Christ, has made you his own. Therefore, because your citizenship is in heaven. Because from heaven you await a savior. Because this savior will one day transform your lowly body into a glorious body, just like his. Therefore, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, because of who you are in him, stand firm in the Lord. There's one end of the hinge swinging us forward. But then he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. In other words, stand firm like this. Stand firm in the way I'm about to show you. Because of all this stuff I've just written to you about, now go live like this. And following that thus, following this summary command to stand firm in the Lord, Paul gives us three commands for us today. With the love of Christ behind us and all around us, with the hope of heaven out there before us, how should we live now? Three answers to that question here in the first few verses of chapter four. Number one, we must agree. We must agree with one another. When I see a call to stand firm, I'm expecting some sort of call to culture war. I don't know about you. That stand firm, maybe this is just a kind of a, a window into me and the kind of movies that I like, but when I see that call to stand firm, I'm imagining a battle scene. You know, I'm imagining, a, I'm imagining a line of defenders on the wall of a castle waiting on a besieging army to arrive. I'm imagining, you know, this, uh, the battle formation, long strand of them holding the line as another army comes forward. I'm imagining that, that general or that king or whoever pacing the line up and down saying, hold the line, stand firm. I mean, Paul's just mentioned enemies, so maybe that's put it on my mind too. He's got a category for enemies, for conflict between the way of Christ and the kingdom he's promised and the way of this world. So I'm thinking culture war. I see stand firm and I'm thinking shields up, swords out, on guard, ready to fight. How interesting then that Paul's first example of standing firm is actually a call to lay down your weapons, to set aside your grievances, and to agree with one another in unity. Look to verse 2 with me. Paul names two women here, two women known and loved by him. These two women are at odds. Uh, many, many people actually believe that, that the, whatever conflict they've got going on between them it may be what led Paul to write so much about unity throughout this letter. It's a theme that's come up over and over and over again, probably more than any other theme. Maybe this conflict right here is behind it all. But Paul doesn't tell us what's going on between these two women. 
I, I think based on what we know about Paul, if it had been a theological disagreement they had, you know, if they had some sort of different understanding from one another about who Jesus is or about how we benefit from what he's done, well, those, those are life and death stakes. He would, have, he would have talked about what was at issue. He would have tried to bring clarity to the issue. He doesn't do that at all. Seems like their disagreement, whatever it was, had nothing to do with Jesus. Much more likely that it was something personal between them. Something perhaps related to hurt feelings or disappointed expectations or even different views about what's best for the church. I mean, clearly they've been deeply invested in the life of the church. When you're, when you're really invested in something, when it's precious to you, disagreements about it come with super high stakes, at least in your mind and your heart, and it can be tough to let things go. But, but friends, whatever may have caused this rift between these two women, it's clear from what Paul says and doesn't say that he sees the rift between them, not the cause of it, as the main threat. He's telling them to stand firm and get past it. That's what matters, not whatever went into it. Uh, friends, we've got to look carefully here at what Paul is saying because I, we should expect conflict like this in our church. The reality is conflict like this is it's just inevitable when, when, when people like us get together. It's something Christianity, if anything, teaches us to expect, even in churches, just as you ought to expect to find sick people in hospitals. Christians come to Jesus in his church because they know they're sinful. They know what sin means. It means putting yourself above God and putting yourself above other people. And that means sin causes unsolvable problems for us. We come to church for help with that. But we've checked into a hospital. We're not, we're not well yet. We're still sick, still prone to the same kind of things that drove us to Jesus in the first place. And that means when you put sinners into deep and open community with other sinners, a conflict is just going to be inevitable. There's no dodging it. It will happen. But, but broken relationships, broken and divided churches, those don't have to be inevitable. Conflict will be inevitable. Broken churches don't have to be. The key is responding to conflict in Christ with the hope of heaven before us. And Paul's words here point the way. There are two things I want you to notice about how Paul guides them past this conflict. Two things we're going to need to get past the conflicts that we'll experience in our church as we wait for heaven. Here's number one. Peace depends on agreeing in the Lord, not agreeing about everything else. We'll need to know that peace depends on agreeing in the Lord, not agreeing about everything else. To me, maybe the most striking thing about this whole section is how little Paul says about what's actually going on between these two women. I mentioned it already. I don't know about you. I wanted more. I mean, maybe that's just uh, historical interest in me, wanting to know about what's going on in this early church. Maybe, honestly, maybe more honestly, I'm just drawn to the drama, you know, kind of looking for a Jerry Springer show effect, some sort of tell-all here. Uh, whatever, whatever might draw us to want more than what he's given us, whatever that is, it has no influence on Paul. He doesn't seem to care. He doesn't say a word about the context. Nothing about who said what to whom or who did what when. And, and he doesn't focus there because that's not the kind of agreement that matters to him. He just wants them to agree in the Lord. In my experience, let me, let me just get even more practical and personal and direct here. In my experience, there can be some value in going back into what happened in a strained relationship 
especially if you're trying to understand somebody else's perspective and it just seems unthinkable to you that they responded or said what they did and you want to know where they were coming from, that can be a good reason to go back and ask more and listen closely. But in my experience, actually coming to an agreement about what happened is often too much to hope for. Uh, Our perception of things is just too distorted. Our desire to be vindicated, to be right, and not just right, but to be seen as right, that's too strong. And our memories, maybe the worst problem of all, guys, our memories are just too creative and self-serving to to have any hope at really getting back to what really happened. And so that means that if unity in our church depends on us agreeing about the roots of our conflicts with each other, we're just not going to stay unified that long. It, It won't happen. It won't be possible. But Paul is setting us free from that expectation. He's given us another way, a way that's grounded in what Christ has done and focused on what Christ has promised us. See, we we must agree that whatever may have happened between us, whatever lies in the past back there where things got difficult, whatever was said or done, Christ matters more. Christ matters more. And Paul used very similar language to this back in chapter 2. He said that he, he wanted them to complete his joy. The only thing he was missing was he wanted them to have the same mind. Didn't mean he wanted them to agree about everything. He wanted them to be focused in the same place. To have the same orientation guiding them through life now. And what he wanted their mind on was Jesus. That's why as soon as he's commanded them to have the same mind, he takes them straight to Christ with one of the most beautiful descriptions ever written of how Jesus has loved us in the middle of, of Philippians chapter 2. He takes them to Jesus and he says, look at him setting aside what was rightfully his to become like us. Look at him choosing to die so that through him we could live. Look at him exalted by God. Look to the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Look to him and you'll be of the same mind. Then look back to each other through him. Look now. And what we see is not someone who hurt me, someone who neglected me, someone who offended me or otherwise mistreated me. What we look at, what we see when we look through Jesus back to one another in conflict even, what we see is someone precious to Jesus. A sinner like me who's now wrapped up in the same costly and beautiful love that's wrapped around me. A fellow pilgrim waiting for heaven and destined for glory. That's what I see when I look through Jesus. Friends, it could be that if we're unable to make peace with each other, it's a sign that our hearts are stuck here in this world where self is Lord of all rather than focused on heaven where Christ is all in all. And whatever may be the cause, this right here is a non-negotiable command. Agree in the Lord. You take the initiative. You go for it. You, like Christ, set aside what seems in your interests and look to the interests of others. Peace depends on agreement in the Lord, not agreement about everything else. And the second thing we need to know about this command of unity, as a Christian, 
You are called to help others agree in the Lord. This is part of your job if you're with Jesus. You can see that in the way that Paul talks about these women. He, he, he does appeal directly to them. Entreat Euodia, play, plead with Syntyche to agree in the Lord. It's their responsibility to agree in the Lord. But then as soon as that's out of his mouth, verse 3, he, take, he goes to others in the church and tells them to help. Help these women. You're implicated here. This is part of your community. It's a a poison that could spread and affect everything else because you're there, because you see it, because the community's interests matter to you and rest on you under God. You help them agree. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul's just picking up where Jesus left off. This is Christianity 101. It's not the work only of, of leaders in the church. It's something, friends, that every one of you should expect to do as part of how you serve our church. And you can do it. You have what you need to help other people agree. You'll just have to first resist the temptation to to feast on the details of the past. To kind of go there with them, especially if it's one-on-one. To take some sort of pleasure in the fact that they've opened up to you to be drawn to being the one that gets it, that understands, the, the one they can rely on. To, to, in other words, sort of enhancing or, or blowing on that fire, being drawn more to the drama than to the peace that you're called to pursue. You'll have to say no to going there with them in a way that's unhealthy, and you'll have to instead take them out of the past where what really happened may never be visible or clear, and to Jesus and what he's done and who he is and what we owe him and in him what we owe to each other. You'll have to take them, in other words, to Philippians chapter 2. You won't find many more practical tools than this one for the work that, that you're called to. Take them to Philippians 2. Read with them the first 11 verses and help them see how that calling is theirs. This is how we stand firm. This is how we live in light of what he's done and what he's going to do. We are more vulnerable as a church to division within than to any attacks from without. Do this work. Stand firm thus and agree. A second example that Paul gives us in these verses for what it looks like for us to live now in light of the love we've experienced and the hope that's set before us, we must not only agree, verse 4 says, we must rejoice. We must not only agree in the Lord, we must, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Same context. Same standard, same goal. Same reference point. Christ, Him crucified and exalted and coming for us. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul writes. And in case you didn't get it, he says it again. Rejoice. Every word in this phrase matters. The first one that jumps out at me is the word always. I mean, you don't have to have lived very long to balk at that word always when it's tied to a command to rejoice, do you? I mean, uh, this world is wonderful. I love it so much and so much about it. But this world is also just not right, is it? People do terrible things to one another in this world. Sickness does terrible things to our bodies in this world. Sometimes we have work that we love, but jobs come and jobs also go, don't they? 
And as the old hymn writer puts it, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. Life in this broken world, it brings constant change. And lots of those changes just aren't pleasant. Sometimes they're brutally difficult to live with. It doesn't take long, in other words, when you're paying attention to how the world works, it doesn't take long to fear what's coming around that next bend, that next day flipped over on the calendar. When you know that truth about the world and you've experienced sorrow and struggle, the fact that Paul says you have to rejoice always, that can come off as, a, as, a, as an unrealistic command at best. At worst, it can sound more like he's saying to put a smile on it no matter what. He's going to stuff down what you're feeling deep down where no one can see it and keep flashing those pearly whites like a Miss America contestant watching the crown placed on somebody else's head. That can sound what, like, what, like what he's called us to. But, but, but guys, we know better, don't we? We've, we've been paying attention to Paul and his situation. We know Paul is not in the cheap seats when he says to rejoice in the Lord always. He puts pen to paper for this sentence behind bars. Where in the eyes of the world, he's already lost everything that matters. And where he's got hanging over his head an imminent execution. That's the guy who tells you to rejoice in the Lord always. How can he say this? Where has he found the strength? Every phrase in this sentence matters. The always is only possible when it's combined within the Lord. Rejoice, the command is clear. Always, really? Yeah, in the Lord. Joy comes from safety. That's why we can see it so clearly, so, so, so much of it so clearly in innocent children before they've really lived with this world, before they've recognized that change isn't always good, that oftentimes it destroys what you love. You need to feel secure to feel joy. So long as joy is tied to something you might not ever get, or something that you might lose after you've got it. There's no way you can rejoice always. You just can't. But in the Lord, uh, in who Christ is and what he's already done and what he's promised to do, in the Lord, well, you can know a joy that not even sorrow can touch. Paul's not minimizing your pain. He's not trying to chop down to size your struggle. He knows pain and struggle. He's trying to maximize Jesus. He's trying to glorify Christ and what we have in him. He can rise above the worst of it. In him, you can rejoice through tears, just as Jesus did. So think of, think of Christ. This is the best image that I've heard of this. Think of Christ as a kind of climate-controlled room. The temperature out there in the world, it fluctuates a lot. Sometimes it feels pretty good, especially on a good spring morning when the sun is shining bright and the birds are chirping and you've got a full belly and everyone you love is around you. Sometimes the world's temp feels pretty good, but sometimes it gets cold out there. How do you rejoice then? The temperature out there is harsh and always changing, but in the Lord, well, the colder it gets out there, the deeper the grief the, the, the more difficult the challenge, the hotter he burns. Your furnace kicks on and keeps you rejoicing always. The more bitter the pain of life in this broken world, the sweeter the taste of what he's promised you. Christ is a climate-controlled room in the Lord. 
grounded in that safety, in that security, in that untouchable hope, you can rejoice always. Friends, don't don't miss the fact that this this is a command to you. Rejoice whether you feel like it or not. And I think it's a command in part because even though everything we hope for depends on Jesus, we do have a role to play here and now, pressing on towards heaven. Think of your role as, as switching on the thermostat. It's a command to rejoice in what he's already done for you and in what he's promised you that sometimes is going to require you focusing yourself on him, especially when the joy you might have in other good gifts is taken away. You've got to activate this system. You've got to focus your mind. You've got to talk back to your heart about Jesus. Think of the psalm, Psalm 42 and 43 especially, where the psalmist is reasoning with himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? He's got good reason to be cast down. He's listed some of them in these psalms, but then he talks back to himself and he says, why are you so down? Hope in God. I will again praise him. My hope, my salvation, my God. That's what, that's what Paul is calling us to here. Rejoice always. Talk back to yourself about Jesus. About the love he's already shown. And about the hope he's set before you. In other words, talk to yourself. Rejoice with the, the conclusion to chapter 3. Your citizenship is in heaven. Rejoice. From heaven you await a Savior. Rejoice. He will transform your lowly body into a new and glorious body just like his. Rejoice. Especially if what you love elsewhere is being taken away. This is how we stand firm. We must agree. We must rejoice. And lastly, friends, we must be gentle. This is verse 5. With the love of Christ behind us and all around us, with the hope of heaven out in front of us, how must we live now? We must be gentle. I wouldn't expect in that one. In fact, I think the point is even obscured a little bit by the way that the, the translation I'm using reads. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Many of you may have the same translation I'm using. I mean, I'm all for reasonableness, especially if it means you know, other people around me being just as reasonable as I am, seeing things my way. Uh, but for this word, in this context, it's a pretty unfortunate choice, a better choice. The one that's made maybe in the translation you're using is gentleness, or as one definition puts it, gentle forbearance. This gentleness that Paul's calling for, it, it's the opposite of, of touchy, the opposite of self-protective, or self-seeking. It's a patient kindness, even or even especially when you're mistreated or affected by somebody else's weakness or sin. That's the character quality he has in mind. Be gentle with others in their flaws. And Paul's telling them here in verse 5, you should be known for your gentleness. You want to be this kind of community. You want to make sure it's recognizable. He's calling them, and he's calling us, to be a community where no one has to walk on eggshells. We're, we're, we're no one's looking to pounce on the slightest misstep or poorly chosen word. You know, the, the kind of place where, where you can have a future that isn't defined by your worst offenses, even when they're recent ones. The kind of place where you don't have to say the right thing in exactly the right way to be understood 
where people are, are for you, where they're generous in their understanding, where they're full of mercy for your flaws. Be known as that kind of people, that kind of community, Paul says. And underneath that, really, Paul's saying, be the sort of person that imperfect people don't have to be afraid of. Be known as the kind of community made up of, of people who, who imperfect people don't have to fear. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that command, I react in, in at least two ways. My first reaction is, I really, really want to be part of a community that's known for its gentleness. Don't you? That sounds great to me. What a powerful contrast. What a sweet relief from the world out there. I mean, you don't need me to tell you. It's rough out there, guys. It, I suppose we humans, as prideful as we are, have, have always been drawn to recognize and complain about and even spotlight the flaws of other people. I guess that, that's nothing new. But, but these days, we just have so much more to work with than they used to have. I mean, the medievals, they had the stocks, you know, where... Whoever they wanted to shame was just locked into those wooden things and people could throw tomatoes at them and what have you. But, but we've got, <laughs> what we've got is a permanent digital, universally accessible record of unfortunate photos, of poorly chosen words, of regrettable ideas and online behavior. And we've got the perfect delivery system to make sure that they echo out for all over the world for all of time. Cancel culture may mean that some people get canceled. That's what we normally mean by that word. But you know what? It certainly means that debts never will be. You will never have your worst moments, your worst words canceled. They live on and they reverberate. I'm not pure enough. I'm not worthy to keep my feet in a world like that. And I want to be part of a community that's known for gentleness, not, not one that's blind to imperfections but one that's not stirred up by them either. One where, one where mistakes are absorbed in grace, not, not reverberated and retweeted so that all the world can see it. Not this echo chamber where, where all of our flaws just bounce around forever. But one with, with sound-absorbing, sin-absorbing, grace-filled walls that just soak it up and move on. I want a community known for gentleness, not harshness, not vindictiveness. That's my first reaction to what Paul says here. I'm thinking, yes, please, give me that community. Uh, but my second reaction follows closely behind. I, I'd really like to be the kind of gentle person <laughs> on whom gentle communities are made. How can I be? Where do I get the kind of gentleness I want to receive? Where does it come from? Friends, remember the context. Paul is telling us to be gentle as an example of what it looks like to stand firm on the basis of what Christ has already done for us and in the light of what he's gonna do. This hinge moment, gentleness looks like a hinge from, from confidence about our standing in him and confidence about our, our future with him. Gentleness is not weakness. This, gentleness comes from a granite, unshakable hope or it comes from, in Paul's words in verse 5, knowing that the Lord is at hand. It comes from knowing he's near. It's not some sort of weakness or fear of conflict or just an agreeable type of personality. 
It comes from knowing that the flaws of others, even their direct and painful mistreatment of you, cannot ultimately threaten you. You can take it because your, your hope is in him. I don't know a better example of gentleness and its source than Jesus himself. Jesus described himself at the time when he peeled back the layers and showed us his heart as one who is gentle and lowly. As a friend with an open invitation where anyone can come to find rest for their souls from the dog-eat-dog alternatives out there. And I don't know of a better place to see his gentleness in action than to zoom in on his worst moments. On the hours before and during his crucifixion when he was relentlessly mistreated and stayed relentlessly focused on the needs of the other people around him through all of it. He, think about this. He used his final meal, his final hours of life, just before he was arrested and killed to serve his disciples. He took their nasty feet in his hands and he washed them and he knew exactly who they were and what they would do. He knew that one of these men whose nasty feet he was watching would betray him. Still, he served him. He knew that another would deny him at the crucial moment. Still, served him. He knew the rest of them, basically all of them, would, would run away from him when he most needed his friends. Still, he served them. When he, when he was on the cross in his agony, his heart was moved not by his own pain, but by his mother who was standing there watching her firstborn suffer and die. He cared for her interests. His heart was moved by the thief dying next to him, a man who deserved to be where he was, but who now, in this moment of truth, was racked with guilt over what he had done and longing for redemption. Jesus' heart is on him. You will be with me in paradise. Just trust me. I've got you. And perhaps most striking of all, he looked on the very soldiers who had caused his pain, those who treated him like an animal to be slaughtered, those who laughed at him and mocked him and cared more about the clothes they'd ripped off from his back than the body that was slowly dying above them. He looked on these men doing their worst and prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's empathizing with them. That's gentleness. Where did that gentleness come from? First Peter chapter 2 tells us. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you see what Peter's saying? Jesus endured what he did with a gentleness not of this world because of the hope that was set before him. He didn't need to vindicate himself. He knew where his vindication would come from. He was looking to God and could not be threatened by the worst this, this world could dish out. Do you want to be the sort of gentle person on which a gentle community depends? If that's what you want to be, friends, as I pray it is, in obedience to this text, what you're going to need it's not just the example that Jesus has set for you. You're going to need to rest in the same hope that was set before him. You're going to need to trust yourself not to vindication here and now. 
but to the one who judges justly and sees all. Or in Paul's words, you're going to need to trust that the Lord is at hand. He's here. He's near to you, watching and always interceding. You're going to need to know that your citizenship is in heaven. Nothing shakes that kingdom. And from heaven, we await a Savior. Jesus Christ, our Lord, he's coming. And when he gets here, he will transform your lowly body to be just like his glorious body. You're going to need hope. And with that hope, therefore, be gentle. And let your gentleness be known to all. Will you join me as we pray that the Lord will give us this kind of radiant, radical hope for his glory. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are, we are in need. Not of more clarity about what to do, or how to honor you and love one another. You've been so clear, even in these verses this morning. But of the power of heart, the motivation to obey you. So we pray for the same mind amongst us, a mind oriented to Jesus, focused on him and clear about all of his beauty. And we pray that with this same mind, Jesus would get glory from our life together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.